Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show on the choose yourself network today on the james altucher show you really want to eat food that you love, but that loves you back. You got to know your friends uh, and who's your enemies. And again, given that everybody's different, every stomach's different, heights are different, weights are different, what's an, what's an average? Sure. So I, I agree with Walter Longo from USC, who's the head of the Longevity Center there. Uh, you only need about 30 grams of protein per day. Now, what does that look like? That looks at about three whole eggs. It looks at uh, two to four ounces of a piece of salmon. One small can of tuna will get you your protein needs for 24 hours. It's not much. And Walter Longo, I think, makes the point that protein dramatically ages us. And if if he had one thing to take away from people to allow them to live longer, it would be protein. So take away proteins, take away sugars, take away most carbs, because there's gluten and all that. Take away all the seedless vegetables I've been gorging on all my life. Take away fruits. And it sounds like I'm eating a pile of shit now. Like, what no, am I eating? No, I want you to eat <laughs> olive oil. The only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. Three of the Blue Zones use a liter of olive oil per week. That's about 10 really? to 12 tablespoons of olive oil a day. Uh, I'm, 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 we are rolling, um, but uh, the laundry has to stop at uh, 2.15, you said? I think 2.15, yeah. 2.20. So, yeah, yeah, we'll give you a sign in 10 minutes. Okay. We got another podcast I got to. What podcast are you going on? I don't know. Where am I going? Goop. Oh, yeah. We're going Goop Fellas. Goop Tella? Goop Fellas. Goop Fella? You know, I don't Goop. Like Gwyneth Paltrow's yeah, thing? Yeah, that's oh. it's the, now the... the uh, well, I'm glad you stopped boys. by here before Gwyneth Paltrow's. Oh, yeah. You were... You are the king. You know yeah, that. Yeah, you were yeah. <laughs> number one. Uh, number she, might one. Queen, she might be the queen. But that's the right. <laughs> Say hi to Gwyn for me, as I call her. Uh, we're here with uh, Dr. Stephen Gundry and Dr. Dean Mitchell. Stephen Gundry is uh, the author of not only the book, The Longevity Paradox, but also The Plant Paradox. And I've got right in front of me The Plant Paradox Family Cookbook. We're going to talk about all of what this means in a second, but we've also got as a guest, I'll say a guest co-host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, uh, board-certified immunologist, practices in New York City, uh, teaches at a local, uh, local medical school here. And thank you both for, for joining. 
hey, thanks for letting me come on the show. And now, um, Dean, you've also read the book, The Plan Paradox. Yes, I have. yes. And, and so l- let me summarize from a layman's point of view sure. what's happening here. And then we can just go at it. And I have a thousand questions and Dean, I know you do as well. And Mm -hmm. you have a thousand answers, Dr. Gundry. Uh, So the basic idea, which is fascinating philosophically, is that for organisms to survive, this goes back millions of years, what what ends up being this cookbook, but, uh, you know, any living organism for millions of years survives in this evolutionary process called hormesis. We basically evolve by becoming um, resistant to things that can hurt us. And so a great example in parenting is, you know, don't always give your kid everything he or she wants, or they might be spoiled and not be equipped for the hardships of adulthood. So the same thing has happened with all organisms at every level. And so now bringing it all the way into food, uh, making a multi-million, billion-year jump, uh, living organisms like Plants, uh, for instance, have also survived through hormesis, meaning they have uh, these things called lectins, which which sort of uh, it, it keep them safe against predators. So plants, fruits, any kind of animal has some mechanisms for keeping them safe. Even humans have some mechanisms for keeping themselves safe from predators. It so happens with with plants and, and many animals, and, and so or every animal. Um, there's these things called lectins where unbeknownst to us, as we've been eating them over the centuries, they're not necessarily the healthiest thing in the world. So people who say all of this diet is good or all of this diet is bad are not taking into account these lectins, which might mean, hey, some plants might have more of these lectins than others. So they're more dangerous to our intestinal system and our immune system, which means they'll create more inflammation, our our system will recognize them as intruders if we eat those plants that are high in lectins. And in so doing, inflammation is known to be related to everything from heart attacks to strokes to cancer to Alzheimer's. And boom, stick to the plants that are low in lectins, eliminate the plants and oils and meats that are high in lectins, and you have a chance for a longer life. (laughs) Good summary. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Anything to... I'm going to ask you specifically about the foods and stuff, but I'll ask you, I'll ask you a basic question, which sure. is, are all intestines created equally? So, uh, you know, Hippocrates, the father of medicine, said all disease begins in the gut. And he said that 2,500 years ago. And I guess uh, I can't believe how prescient he was to, to actually know that. Uh, I've come over the last 20 years to think he's absolutely right, that probably everything that happens to us, uh, whatever the disease process is, uh, begins uh, with leaky gut in one way or another. What does leaky gut mean? That's a great question. If you had asked me 15 years ago, I would have laughed you out of the room. And uh, probably my colleague uh, would have laughed anybody out of the room. I I thought it was pseudoscience. But, you know, I think Thanks to Dr. Vizzano from Johns Hopkins for working out the mechanism of how gluten, which is a lectin, causes leaky gut by, you know, producing zonulin, which then trips the uh, tight junction that binds all of our cells in our gut. And you can actually demonstrate that lectin's job from a plant standpoint is to, among other things, try to produce leaky gut. And that once you make this impenetrable barrier penetrable, that not only do lectins, which are foreign proteins, and people should think of splinters under their skin getting red, that's our immune system attacking that splinter. So lectins can get through the wall of our gut along with bacterial particles and bacteria themselves. And we forget uh, that about 60% of our entire immune system, our entire white blood cell population, lines the gut because that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where invaders are going to come across for the most part. Uh, what about, uh, you know, and this is to the immunologist here, yes. what about like diseases you get through, you know, contagion, you know, so some viral right, or... Right, You know, it's interesting, James. You know, one of the things when I sit down with patients and I'm talking, because leaky gut comes up every single day in my practice, but I, I have like a little drawing, a little picture of the body and the, the organs inside. And I explained to them, it was interesting, when I did my training in the um, late 1980s, 
it was at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And we were seeing people sick and dying every week. It was frightening. <laughs> and at that time, my training was the immune system was all from your bone marrow and from your thymus gland, because the thymus gland produces T cells. That's, that's where the T comes from. Mm. And the bone marrow produces the B cells. And that's, you know, again, through most of my training, if somebody got sick recurrently or had problems, it was a problem because one of those two uh, organs were not working properly. But what Dr. Fasano has shown, as Dr. Gundry just mentioned, he showed something really interesting how your environment, or obviously the food you're taking in, can actually affect your immune system. And there's this whole new group of doctors called functional medicine doctors that are looking at how the gut can affect the immune system. And in fact, also too, the as Dr. Gundry said, there's a whole immune system around the gut that goes through your whole intestine, you know, because it has to. It has to protect what you're taking in because even any foods you're eating have some bacteria on it and your body has to be able to defend. So, um, what I explain to patients is that, unfortunately, again, I also certain foods that I see people eating, a lot of it's very processed foods, are causing harm to the intestine because the intestine is only one cell thick. It's not like your skin that has seven layers. It has to protect you. If you got an infection through your skin, it would right away go into your bloodstream. But the intestine, with all its mucus and everything, has a lot of protection, but it's only one cell thick. So if that, those cells, as Dr. Gunter was explaining, kind of separate a little bit, then things like yeast or bacteria, or even certain food proteins get through into your bloodstream. And that's why we start to see things like autoimmunity or, mm. you know, the body reacting and it causing inflammation in others. And that's why also it's interesting that celiac disease is one of the most fascinating diseases because it's taught us that, you know, again, when I showed a, at the lecture that we were at the conference this past weekend, I showed a slide showing when I was in medical school, we, we were taught Celiac disease was only a pediatric disease. You saw the, the very small little children with distended bellies. And that's what you pictured with celiac disease. But now we know all of these presentations, they come up with rashes, they have arthritis. And that's because we understand that this leaky gut has caused inflammation. In yes, yeah, so because like, like when I, you know, when everyone was, go was going on and on about gluten, yeah, let's say. Yeah, right, gluten enemy. <laughs> yeah, like, like I didn't even, A, I didn't know what gluten was, but B, <laughs> I thought, like my grandmother had celiac disease. I thought only you're, if you had celiac disease, you should know it when you were young or yeah. you have, right. Mm -hmm. But 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 now you're saying basically gluten, you know, is a problem. Yeah, and what I've found and others have found is that people who go gluten free don't realize that a ton of the gluten free products actually have other lectins which are equally mischievous or more so. In fact, I allude to a paper uh, of taking people who had celiac disease uh, by uh, duodenal biopsy, which is, you know, the gold standard, and putting them on a gluten-free diet for 16 months and then re-biopsying them. And 70% of them still had celiac disease 16 months into a gluten-free diet. Because, because again... Because they're actually eating other mm. lectins that are still causing the problem. So like other plant... So you mentioned several types of plant-based foods that have... You, you, you in general, you're favoring, of course, a plant-based diet, but yeah. you're saying many plant-based foods have these lectins that are just as harmful. Correct. You got to know your friends uh, mm. and who's your enemies. And plants, you know, have developed this rather sophisticated defense system that we kind of forget that plants are some of the greatest chemists and alchemists that ever existed. You know, they, they can turn sunlight into matter, and we haven't figured out how to do that yet. <laughs> and and from, from an evolutionary perspective, humans have sort of lasted for hundreds of thousands of years because we, in general, didn't really eat plants with a lot of lectins. That those were, We weren't cooking them. It wasn't readily available to us as a leafy, organic cruciferous foods and some meats, you know, even meats were, were relatively rare, but, but again, they were grass fed. <laughs> right. uh, we would catch them with our hands and not put medicines and hormones in them. Well, I think one of the things uh, certainly allergists have known and immunologists have owned, and I was luckily trained in transplant immunology by uh, a great transplant immunologist, Sandra Nelson Canarella, when I was at Loma Linda. Um, we know that you know chronic exposure to low levels of allergens, and we could view lectins as an allergen if we want, then you can become tolerant to that. And one of the arguments is that our microbiome evolves to handle 
a lot of these plant lectins and a lot of these plant compounds. And that microbiome actually teaches our immune system what's good, who we should fear, who's our friends, who's our enemy. I say, oh, our microbiome says, oh, yeah, that plant's, you know, got a, a bunch of lectins, but we've known this plant for two million years. And yeah, we got it. You don't have to get, you know, your panties all tight. Uh, so like eggplant, for instance. Yeah. Now, eggplant's a brand new plant for most of us. And people go, oh, no, people have been eating eggplant for as long as I can remember. But we forget that the nightshade family is actually American plants. They're from America, and none of us are actually from America. <laughs> but but you can imagine though, like like some of these food, like well, well, let's get a, a little into some of the foods that are good and bad, because then I have some more questions about this. But like, uh, let's start with the bad, because that's the scary Ooh, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then there's all sorts of obviously sugar is bad. Everybody, yeah. it seems to be like the common thing. So so cow's milk. A lot of people have written about how that. Uh, causes inflammation, but I was surprised on fruit. You mentioned you've got to be very careful. You know, some people do just a fruit-based diet. Like I've had fruititarians on this podcast, you know, people who, who only fruit until noon, for instance. So we forget, and I talk about this in all my books, that fructose is a toxin. And it is so dangerous that we take fructose when we absorb it from our intestines. And for the most part, we don't put it into our bloodstream like glucose. So it actually goes into the portal vein that goes to the liver where fructose is detoxified into triglycerides, which is the main contributor to our cholesterol problem, or into uric acid, which is a pretty doggone good way to raise blood pressure, and it's also a kidney toxin. The other 30% of fructose gets loose, and as I've shown in my books, it's a pretty good toxin to the kidneys in and of itself. So if I have somebody with kidney failure that I want to keep off a of dialysis, the first thing I do is take fruit out of their diet. And we forget that any seeded vegetable, like an eggplant, like a tomato, is actually a fruit. It's not a vegetable at all, like a zucchini. So we take that out of their diet. And cucumbers, cucumbers, pickles, yeah. pickles. Sorry about that. I know you've yeah, yeah, it's really, really <laughs> you've came pretty upsetting. <laughs> what, about, what about blueberries and blackberries? What about because those are considered yeah, a high antioxidant. That's other a great buzzword. question. So it turns out that blueberries have really been bred for sugar content. In fact, I can go to the, the organic Santa Barbara farmers market and buy organic blueberries that are size of grapes because they've been bred for sugar content. So the safest of the berries are actually blackberries and raspberries. Um, so, uh, But are they healthy or should we avoid them altogether? No, so fruit in season was perfectly useful. In fact, uh, all great apes, and this was actually my study at Yale as an undergraduate, all great apes only gain weight during fruit season. And fruit season does not occur year-round in the jungle. And they gain weight because they take the fructose and turn it into fat. And so they make it through the winter when there's less uh, food available. And that occurs in the jungle. It occurs everywhere. And I've said from kind of day one that, you know, if you want to get fat, eat fruit. Huh. I would not. Can I, I jump probably, in on a question? Sure. Any, uh, Gunter, feel you know free. what I also was thinking about, you know, because uh, again, too, I mean, you, there are a lot of people who wrote different things, you know, about plant-based diets, but there are also a lot of phytonutrients in some of them. We know like in the, you know, the, and from the color, you know, yes. the color from the blueberries and blackberries. Yep. Those are, so how do you. Those are polyphenols. Right. The polyphenols. So how do you balance when you're advising? I know the patients that you've seen and you've done tremendous things with, how do you, you know, again, also obviously lifestyle. I mean, we, you know, people want to enjoy their life. How, sure. how do you get them to um, find the right combination? Well, so what I tell them, everybody's got a juicer in their house. So I tell them to re re reverse juice, take all the berries and the fruit, put it through the juicer, throw the juice away, take the pulp, which has got all the phytonutrients, okay. and mix it in. If you want to mix it into coconut yogurt or goat yogurt, be my guest. And it's actually delicious that way. And that's a great idea. That's a great I've heard this from also some very like holistic people, people who don't have like our MD degrees. They're very some very bright people. You go to these mm -hmm. health food stores and uh, I've known some that have done that where I've heard them recommend it for arthritis and other things too to, to get so many of the nutrients because that's what I'm concerned about. Like sometimes when you start eliminating so many foods, 
And I've even seen this too. I got to be honest with you. You know, in my practice, when I have people that have dysbiosis with their, mm-hmm. they don't have a good balance of the microbiome, sometimes they go vegan, you know, uh, or vegetarian and they get sicker. Yep. And that actually happened to myself too. I once I went to Dean Ornish years ago in my early 30s because I knew he was doing great work on heart disease. So I said, you know what? Let me go out and find out what he's doing. I went out there. I went through the program with all these heart patients because I wanted to see what it was like. And I was really convinced it was really outstanding to see, yeah, these people had bypass who couldn't walk a block and they were doing tremendous. So I came back to New York. I said, this is what I'm going to promote. And I went strict vegetarian for about four or five years. But what happened to me? I, over a period of time, at first, you know, I had all that whole vegetarian thing. Like, I'm, I'm like super cool, you know. I'm, you told I'm, all your friends. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I'm vegetarian. They're like, yeah. you announced how. You're looking worse and yeah, worse right. every day, you know. I mean, like, why do you look so sickly? Why do you look sickly? <laughs> but then also, I guess from the stresses of life, I mean, we're in New York. We're not in India or someplace where you just sit around and meditate all day. My energy was sapping out. <laughs> Apologies checked, to the billion people in India listening to this. Sorry about that. that. Yeah. <laughs> and they took my blood and my B vitamins. Everything was all low. And I was like, whoa, I better really you know, take another look at this, you know, certain diets might be good for certain people. So I, I think that's always the issue too, that can, when we're restricting a lot of foods, making sure people are getting, you know, the but, proper nutrition. But also Dr. Mitchell, were you to get protein on a vegan or vegetarian diet? Were you eating a lot of lentils and beans? Um, I probably not enough. And, uh, because you know, he would say, Dr. Andre yeah. would say that's, those were high in le- lectins. So that might've been some of the cause as well. That's, it's interesting. Maybe. Yeah. I well, mean, I think- yeah. And I, I take care of a lot of vegan and vegetarians in my practice because, you know, I was professor at Loma Linda for most of my career and Loma Linda is an Adventist institution mm-hmm. that promotes a vegan and vegetarian diet. So, and these often, I'm not saying everyone or some of the sickest people that come to me because they, in general, uh, are a pasta, grain, and beanitarian. Right. They're not a vegetarian. That's and right. we forget that. And actually, many vegetarians in, in Asia specifically are vegetarians. They're eating mostly vegetables rather than our refined idea of vegetarianism. But so many of these cultures have a practice of getting lectins out of, for instance, their beans by soaking them for days at a time and changing the water every few hours and throwing that out because lectins will come out of beans with with soaking. It's not perfect, but it sure helps. So if I buy, let's call it or organic beans in the store, I don't know, I don't even know how they're sold, but uh, as opposed to canned processed beans, is there a chance that they've gone through that process? Uh, No, but there is, and I have no relationship with this company, there is a company called Eden that makes beans, and they actually soak their beans, but also pressure cook their beans. They're really the only company that I've been able to find that does that. So, for instance, I've got probably six cans of Eden beans, and, you know, people go, what, Dr. Gundry eats beans? Well, yeah, if you pressure cook them, they're actually a pretty nice source of, you know, good stuff. But you got to be careful. So you know, like you know, Dan Butner, you know, who you've had on the yeah, show, yeah. talked about. He said in most cultures that have lived very long lives, you know, again, beans is usually a staple of of their diet. Yeah, which would, is not true. As no, I talk know, about in no? the longevity paradox, that is absolutely not. True. Oh, really? Well, oh, well, <laughs> well, there's a couple of things because I was just thinking about the blue zones uh, when we started this, and 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 Dan Butner, because a lot of the diets are common, right, between the Mediterranean Mediterranean diet and the Okinawa diet and, and so on. And there's like wild caught fish, which you seem to be uh, moderate on. Yeah. Like, uh, and then I guess kind of leafy greens, you know, like the grape leaves or seaweed or things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, the as I talk about in the longevity paradox, the really only common factor with all the blue zones, and I'm actually the only nutritionist who's ever spent most of his life in a blue zone. That's right. You're uh, I'm the only one. one. Are you a Seventh-day Adventist? No, I'm not. I was one of the few. Uh, actually, one of the few people that ever rose to chairmanship of a department who's not an Adventist, but I have a lot of respect for them. But the, for instance, the Okinawans, great example. Uh, the only actual survey that was ever done of the old Okinawan diet was the U.S. government in 1949 as an occupational force and uh, occupying force. And it turns out that the Okinawan diet, traditional Okinawan diet, is 85% purple sweet potato. 85%. Wow. 
5% is rice, but it's white rice, not brown rice. And the original researchers said, boy, wouldn't they be so much healthier mm-hmm. if they ate brown rice instead of white rice? What a bunch of idiots. I mean, really, the intellectual, you know, uh, they think they're so smart. We should be looking at the oldest living people and say, hey, they're eating white rice and not much of it. What do they know that we don't know? And they've been throwing the lectins away in brown rice. And they eat soy, but they don't eat soybeans. They eat miso and natto, which is fermented soy. So like is tofu? Tofu is not fermented. They don't eat tofu. So, and, and for instance, and they don't really, the only fat that they use is pork lard. And they don't eat any fish. For instance, the Sardinians, one of the other blue zones, the long-living Sardinians live up in the mountains. They don't eat any fish. Uh, And so there is none of this commonality except the common factor in all these diets, including the Adventists, is they eat very little animal protein. And that's the common factor. But if you can't get animal protein, if you can't get protein from animals and you can't get protein from beans and lentils, unless they're like soaked for a million years or whatever, is there a danger uh, on the uh, a, a good lectin-free diet of not getting enough protein? No, it's you just ask a gorilla. A gorilla gets plenty of protein by eating leaves. A chimpanzee gets plenty of protein by eating leaves. Oris gets plenty of protein by eating leaves. And we forget that. We also forget that we have very little need for protein. It's Obviously, we need protein, and don't come away from this podcast hearing me say, you don't need protein. Of course we do. But it's under, we overestimate our need because, among other things, we're extremely efficient. And we, we have this one-cell layer in our gut that is constantly be, being sloughed. We actually re-eat the lining of our gut every day, and there are pretty good studies that we re-eat about 20 grams of protein just from our gut every day. You mean our system takes these cells Cells and and digests them, brings them into the intestines, sucks the protein out of them, uses those, but don't we have to replenish the protein? Right. We, We do need, you know, there's obviously, we do need essential amino acids, but you can get all that from a vegan diet, but am I saying that everybody should be a vegan? No. Uh, I, some of my sickest people are, are vegans until we change what they eat. But you can be very successful on a plant-based vegan diet and have great health as long as you supplement with certain vitamins and omega-3 fats. I think also one of the things that's important with Dr. Gunders bringing out, you know, protein has been a little bit hyped up in our society. I mean, between the people, you see in the pictures of the bodybuilders and yeah. everything. You know, I know even my son, you know, will kill me for mentioning him. But, you know, he was always asking, like, I want to get bigger, stronger, et cetera. Steroids. And, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll avoid that one. That's right. But, Let's uh, not go there. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the whole protein is really, you know, about, you know, with all these powders and everything, it's a little bit over the top. And, you know, sometimes I see my own practice too. I mean, people, it definitely will affect their kidney function because, because yep. our body wasn't meant to go, you know, over time on the protein consumption. So, so like there are versions of the low-carb diet which suggest figure out a way to get 30 grams of protein first thing in the morning. Like how many grams of protein a day do you uh, – and again, given that everybody's different, every stomach's different, heights are different, weights are different, what's an – What's an average? Sure. So I, I agree with Walter Longo from USC, who's the head of the Longevity Center there, and I, I just actually spent some time with him recently. Uh, you only need about 30 grams of protein per day. Now, what does that look like? That looks at about three whole eggs. It looks at uh, two to four ounces of a piece of salmon. One small can of tuna will get you your protein needs for 24 hours. It's not much. And Walter Longo, I think, makes the point that uh, protein dramatically ages us. And if if he had one thing to take away from people to allow them to live longer, it would be protein. So take away proteins, take away sugars, take away most carbs because there's gluten and all that. Take away all the seedless vegetables I've been gorging on all my life. Take away fruits and... It sounds like I'm eating a pile of shit now. Like, what no, am I, eating? I want you to eat <laughs> olive oil. The only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. Three of the blue zones use a liter of olive oil per week. That's about 10 really? to 12 tablespoons of olive oil a day. 
What about something like uh, a lot of people talk about coconut oil, some of these other oils? So here's the deal. What you're looking for in an oil, uh, oleic acid, which is the main ingredient in olive oil, isn't particularly interesting. It's a monounsaturated fat. But you're looking for the polyphenols, getting back to plant phytonutrients, that are contained in that substance. Coconut oil has... Uh, let me put it another way. Olive oil has 10 times the polyphenols of coconut oil. And shameless plug, I brought you some olive oil pearls from Gundry MD. Oh, excellent. One teaspoon of these olive oil pearls, which taste like caviar and look like caviar, gives per day, one teaspoon per day, gives you the equivalent of having two and a half gallons of olive oil per week in terms of polyphenol content. So well, is, that, is that too much? No, you can never get enough polyphenols, in my opinion. What's, you know, and I'm going to, there's this buzzword, antioxidant. What What's that? Well, I'll, you know, I'll have to go to my podcast, you know, The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I, I actually got a, uh, the privilege of interviewing Mark Madison. I don't know if you're familiar with mm, yeah, You probably sure. quoted him in your yep. book. He was a, uh, a special researcher at the NI yep. Anti-Aging Center in, uh, in Washington, a really brilliant researcher. I think I think the most quoted of all the articles in, in this whole area. And this is what he said to me, because I was I read his article in Scientific American. He says that the antioxidant is a little bit of a misdirection, hmm. that it really, you know, that the whole thing about the benefit of these plant-based foods is um, what Dr. Gundry mentioned about hormesis, meaning this the slight pesticide or repellents in the plants themselves actually stimulate our immune system to give us the benefit. So I know, James, I know the longer you get into medicine, the more you like, you say, oh my God, they told me this was right all these years and now they're coming out with something else. Who should I believe? But I, I think, I just also to help the listeners a little bit too, I think that a plant-based diet, obviously, you know, with some of Dr. Gundry's recommendations are important. I think the overall theme and Dr. Madsen and Dr. Longo on USC will say too is also, nobody's gonna love this, but eating less. And meaning this time-restricted eating, that's another whole thing we, where if you just miss one meal a day, meaning let's say you, I, I, for, forever I always ate breakfast. I thought I got up, you know, I was trained, probably as you were a kid growing up in, you know, yeah. here in New York area, your breakfast <laughs> is the most important, you know, meal of the day. Well, it's not really true. And by just skipping a meal and letting your body go about 14 hours, 16 hours without eating, helps your cells regenerate. So... So, so I, yeah, yep. it's interesting because so I do that every day, um, and I I feel like there's a hierarchy of diets. So on the one hand, on the very top, just cut out sugar, like processed sugar, it is big. like don't eat candy, right? Yep. Cook cookies, right. whatever. Second thing is what you're saying, just reduce calories. If if you're on a diet to lose weight, reduce calories. If you're on a diet to gain health, now we start getting into should I eat eat just keto? Should I eat a vegetarian? Should I be a pescatarian? And then we start getting into the, you know, what you're talking about. Like, even if I do plant-based, some plants are good, some plants are not so good. So, uh, this is where it starts to get complicated. Like you're saying like, oh no, I was eating brown rice because these guys said it. Is it white rice sugar? Because that's what these guys told me. And then it starts to get confusing. Yeah, you know, the, the second level of my pyramid, the Gundry Food Pyramid, is don't eat anything. <laughs> and I, I think, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Longo and I would both agree that, you know, the more you time restrict your feeding, the better off you are. Um, I'll be going in this winter, I'll be going into my 18th year from January through June during the week. Uh, I eat all my calories in a two-hour window from 6 to 8 o'clock at night. So 22 out of 24 hours, I don't eat. And you, have, do, you have uh, water? I have water, coffee, tea, black. And uh, so, so far, 18 years into it, uh, works pretty doggone good. So I tend, during that time period, I tend to lose about 10 pounds. And then I spend the summer and fall actually trying to gain 10 pounds, and it's pretty easy to do, uh, so that I, t and because we cycled, one of the reasons, you know, 
we're the cockroach of Earth uh, in terms of a, of a mammal, is that we've been able to occupy every niche in in the world because of our ability to actually burn fat as a fuel and go through prolonged periods of time without eating. Now, that's not to say in our current environment, particularly in America, that we should tomorrow start a five-day water fast because we now, unfortunately, store all of our heavy metals, all of our pesticides in our fat. And one of the things that I caution anyone who will listen to me is, please don't start doing a water fast without realizing you're going to dump huge amounts of heavy metals and pesticides into your bloodstream. And our liver has a horrible ability to detoxify. Why is that? Because we're, we're the, I, I don't understand. You're saying um, in the, the fat in our body, yeah. which we're going to start overusing if we go on a fast, a lot of those that fat has pesticides because, I don't know. That's where we store it, to protect us. I see. So, 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 for instance, a giant swordfish who's swimming around, you know, full of energy, he's got toxic levels of mercury stored in his fat, but it's not bothering him because it's stored in his fat. And so when we eat, so when, how do we get that those pesticides? So, so for instance, if we have a piece of swordfish, uh, it's in us. When we have anything that's non-organic, we have huge amounts of pesticides in us. You look at the workers who harvest you know, fruits and vegetables in California, they have huge amounts of pesticides in their bloodstream. And it's really cool, and I talk about this in the new book, the Plant Paradox Family Cookbook. You can put kids, a family on organic vegetables for two weeks and the levels of their pesticides uh, dramatically fall in just two weeks by taking away. Will they notice the change? That's a great question. Uh, we know that there are some studies looking at behavior changes when pesticides are eliminated for a period of time. Will they feel it immediately? I doubt it. So how does one, like when I go to the store and say, hey, I just want... Is, it, is this basically just saying organic? Yeah. The, uh, Although organic's got pesticides. Sadly, the organic um, label, depending on the label, has been modified consistently over the years. There are some organic labels that will allow you to label organic if 70% of it is organic and 30% isn't. So we have to be careful. Uh, but it's still, if you can do 70%, uh, that's still a whole lot better. It, should people order online for it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's great places to get this stuff online. And, I mean, I think places like, for instance, Thrive Market is doing a really good job of, of trying to give uh, places. And there's great grass-fed, grass-fed beef, uh, grass-finished beef companies online. So so, so let, let's see some more about what's what's bad, what's good. So we talked about beans and lentils. Oh, can I say one more thing about yeah. polyphenols? Yes. And, and antioxidants. Yes. Um, each year I usually lecture, there's a very large polyphenol conference that happens in Europe in the spring. And a few years ago, the organizer who's from Paris, um, when he opened the conference, he said, now, those of you who are here that think polyphenols are antioxidants and that antioxidants exist, I want to, you to leave the room. <laughs> you have no business being here because I can't spend the next day teaching you that there are no antioxidants in these compounds. Mm. And I thought that was probably one of the most shocking but amazing things I've ever heard, and it's true. So the thing is to focus on the polyphenols and kind of... Yeah, and the, the important point is also, that's why it's so important also getting a lot of your nutrients from your food. Like when you read, you know, people say take these supplements, antioxidants, full, you know, Centrum, I don't want to criticize them, but any, any vitamin that's promoting antioxidants, they're really, in a way, it's a little bit deceiving because the benefit of so many of the nutrients is in the food itself. Yeah, you know, and I'm not saying supplement. I I like also a lot though. I like herbs. I I think those again being plant based. I look like ginger, um, curcumin, turmeric, all that kind of stuff too. I I tell my patients all the time. They'll see actually when you come to my office. <laughs> it's a little weird. It has books out there. I have your books sometimes, James, <laughs> but I have Dr. Gundry's, and I have like you'll see a little shelves. I have like you know certain kind of spices and stuff too. And I tell people because they worry like should I be taking turmeric? I say, hey, look, look at this powdered, you know, turmeric. Just pour this on your food. Put a teaspoon on your food. You're going to get as much benefit, you know, without maybe even the side effects of taking it as a pharmacologic dose of turmeric. Because I've seen turmeric with um, 
combined with, for instance, resveratrol. Resveratrol, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgot the specific brand name, but yeah. uh, uh, it, it seems like people view it as an anti-aging uh, Right, but the thing they have to be careful about, there was really actually a great article by Lisa Sanders, who I, again, unfortunately interviewed. She In one of her uh, New York Times Magazine articles, there was a patient that came in and, believe it or not, had a stroke. And it turned out when they, they were trying to go through all the things, what was the risk factor, whatever, because it was a person like in their 40s or 50s who really didn't have the risk factors. They were taking turmeric, very high doses, mm. and it became like a drug. Mm. Because you, again, when, you, when you're just swallowing capsules, it's not like if you, you were going to put 10 teaspoons of turmeric on your food, you would you know, probably gag. So I think that you have to respect when they start making these different types of um, herbs and and spices that you know again how you know what kind of quantity you're taking mm. so that, so so yeah so again it's like it's almost like stressful thinking about it like oh no here's the fruit aisle can't go there <laughs> uh peanuts and peanuts and peanut butter i knew about uh uh I'm yeah please stay away from peanut butter it's uh <laughs> it really, i never, really never like that even as a kid actually oh yeah it's unbelievable. very atherosclerotic uh <laughs> what's that mean I mean, it, it produces heart disease. I mean, yeah. it produces uh, plaque. And, they do it. They do an experiment. I'll never forget. I was at a conference at Harvard once, and they were talking about that. And you know, I used to love peanut butter growing up. And they're like, "When well, we want to try to in, you know induce atherosclerosis, like, you know, in like in you know the animal experiments, monkeys, we yeah. feed them a lot of peanut, you know, peanut and peanut oil. You know, well, like yeah. that can't be good." Mm. I don't know. Maybe we should focus on the. I love on his well in this book too. The um on his. Uh, the plant the, paradox, page two hundred one. All the things that you can have. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 tell the I patients, was about to get to that because I was just saying because you know when I go to with patients too when I when I show them certain diets, <laughs> I used to have the yeses in the nose. I got rid of the nose because I found people were so focused on the nose and they were so depressed by the time they walked out of my office. I said, "That's a great focus, point. Let's focus on the yeses." Well, the first yes is fat. Yeah. So, and obviously if I eat a bag of Doritos or a, <laughs> or a chocolate cake or something, mm-hmm. that might not be so good for me. And you know, my, my I have a daughter who's like like many young girls gets either obsessed with nutrition and has her vegan stage. And I once asked her about fats because she was my nutritionist for a while and when she was 12. And <laughs> she was like, well, dad, fat is called fat for a reason, <laughs> which made sense when she said it that way. But now everybody tells me, like, obviously, people say avocados are good. But yeah. what's the pros and cons of, of fats? Well, again, I... I really think that most of what goes uh, through anybody's mouth ought to be fat, the good fat like olive oil, like avocados. There's actually very good studies with both avocados and with olive oil that the more you ingest, the more weight you lose, including a very large study called the Predimed study in Spain with 65-year-old people. And they were forced to use a liter of olive oil per week for five years on a Mediterranean diet. And they were compared to a group that followed a low-fat Mediterranean diet. And the group with the olive oil uh, actually lost weight, and the other group didn't. Well, what did the low-fat uh, people eat instead? So they actually had 30% of their diet was fat as opposed to about 70% of their diet was fat. So that's considered a low-fat diet, a Mediterranean diet. So they just followed everything else but except for the addition of olive oil. And the really cool thing about that study is that the people on the olive oil portion actually improved their memory over five years. In other words, their memory was better at 70 than it was at 65, and the low-fat group had worse memory, which you would have expected because they were five years older. And getting into heart disease, the people with heart disease in both groups, the olive oil group had a 30% reduction in new events versus the low-fat group. And so, again, though, like if I'm getting avocados, do I just get them at the store or? Yeah, actually, you don't need to really obsess about, for instance, an avocado or something with you're going to peel away Uh. the outside. So spend your money where it's important. Uh, An avocado, you know, get a conventional one. It's okay. Nuts the same way. But spend your money, for instance, on leafy greens, on broccoli or cauliflower, those things where you really are going to ingest those pesticides and herbicides. And, and should I get them online or should I go like Thrive uh, Market? Or? I mean, for instance, um, I'm not a huge fan of Walmart, but Walmart has really made organic 
food accessible to the average consumer. They have really drummed down the fact that they will pay well for organic foods. Same with Costco. Costco does a very good job with mm-hmm. organic foods. So this, and I, my practice is primarily insurance-based, uh, Medicare-based, and I even take Medicaid patients. So I know how you know important uh, money is to these people. And you can now, you can do quite well. And that's one of the points of this book is you can actually save your life pretty well now uh, knowing where to shop. So you say, um, uh, you know, so, so basically fats like avocado, what other, what other kind of fats would you, you have MCT yeah, oil? You know, MCT oil is a very interesting fat. It's a, a part of coconut oil. It's a medium chain fatty acid. Uh, that's what MCT stands for, uh, medium chain triglyceride. And it actually becomes a ketone actually fairly easily in our liver. And ketones are one of the ways our mitochondria can produce energy. The other way is by using glucose. And one of the things I point out to anyone who will listen is one of the secrets to good health is having these mitochondria, which generate energy, have the ability to switch on a dime from burning glucose as a fuel to burning ketones as a fuel. Kind of like uh, a hybrid car can switch from you know battery power, electricity, to internal combustion. And the more you have the ability to be able to switch, called mitochondrial flexibility, the healthier you are and the longer you're going to live. So the, the more ability I have for, for my mitochondria to switch, how do I know if I have that ability? How do you get that ability? So one of the best ways to look, uh, and I I recommend uh, physicians and functional medicine practitioners that I teach, and I have uh, family medicine or residents rotate through my clinic. If you were going to get one blood test to tell you if you have mitochondrial flexibility, it's a fasting insulin level. Not hemoglobin A1C, not fasting blood sugar, a fasting insulin level. And that's one of the best ways of looking at mitochondrial flexibility. Dr. Country, what, what would be the level that would be good? You'd rather see it on the lower end, obviously? Oh, yeah. Closer, yeah. closer, closer you get to one, the really? better. Really? That low? Wow. I, I run mine at around even. two. My wife's down wow. less than one. I hate her. Um, <laughs> I just can't I, Yeah, you get I competitive with that. all these tests. Yeah. Like- well, you know, for instance, <laughs> when I started this journey uh, 20 years ago, uh, my fasting insulin level was 16. And uh, I, you know, was I was obese. I had prediabetes. I had hypertension. I had high cholesterol, arthritis, and I don't have any of those things anymore. And for instance, in our office, if somebody hemoglobin, give me another example, hemoglobin A one C, perfect is five point zero. If you get below five point zero in our office, you are awarded a coveted gold star. And I actually have them in the drawer, and we. <laughs> put them on their forehead. It reminds me, my my wife and I have been, we've just started in the past four weeks working with a personal trainer, and he's put us on a very strict keto diet, so mostly meat and vegetables. Some of the vegetables that you say are bad, like, for instance, squash. Um, but the main thing now is she bought these ketosis strips so we can see if we're in ketosis. So, like, all day long we're peeing on these strips just to see who's more in ketosis could you stay on ketosis forever? No. Uh, so, in Dr. McCola, Joseph McCola, and I get on our horse about this. There's no evidence that we ever uh, stayed in ketosis all the time. That would be dumb. You know, when we brought down a woolly mammoth, we didn't say, oh, gosh, we really shouldn't eat that today because, you know, I want to stay in ketosis. Or if we had hit a fruit tree, we'd go, oh, gosh, I want to stay in ketosis. That's ridiculous. Um Mercola, to his credit, usually takes something to extremes and then at least talks about whether he learned something from it. And he tried to stay in continuous ketosis, and he learned the hard way that his energy levels just became nothing. Wow, okay. And he thinks, and I agree with him, that he probably once a week ought to interrupt that ketosis. He likes to do it with lots of fruit. He has a two-acre orchard on his property that's organic, but he can pull that off because he's in Florida. Um, and like food like blackberries or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that's a very well 
good way to do it. I like to use resistant starches, like have some sweet potatoes or yams to break your ketosis. So there's lots of ways to do that. But, for instance, if you want to get in ketosis all the time, squash is one of the worst ways to do it. It's a fruit. Um, Now, keto strips stop working after about two weeks. Uh, okay. Because we, if we're doing it right, we change over from using acetate as a fuel to using butyrate as a fuel, and you won't pick up butyrate on a ketone strip. That could explain how after this weekend where we felt we had gotten out of it, we had a cake, we still seem to be in ketosis. Yeah. Seemed like the oddest thing. Yeah, they become pretty useless. So, okay, just back to the good stuff. Uh, well, can we about cheese? I'm, I'm, I'm also fascinated by this because most of the time you would think cheese is not a good food. I mean, it's very processed or whatever, but it's, it's on scary. your yes. Yeah, yeah there are certain... People would be very happy that it's on the list. Well, there, <laughs> yeah, there are certain cheeses that I think, uh, for instance, um, Parmesan cheese, um, aged cheeses have a very interesting compound that are called polyamines. And polyamines are one of the biggest promoters of longevity that have ever been studied. In fact, one of the polyamines that gets people's attention is spermidine. And I can make, let you guess where that's found. Um, but polyamines actually promote longevity. And there's a cool study out of Italy looking at men who routinely eat Parmesan Reggiano cheese versus men who don't and the men who eat Parmesan Reggiano cheese have a 40% less incidence of heart disease than the men who don't eat Parmesan cheese. Ugh, what if I hate cheese? Uh, so you don't have to eat it, but it's just an interesting why, source why of th- polyamine. Why do you, th- you think so, that the, so the polyamines that are, are Yeah, it's the polyamines. That's, that's the good stuff. So, so, okay, so you talk about the, the obvious thing, which is the greens, but we have to remember greens don't include cucumbers. So yeah, That's a fruit. Yeah, so, yeah. It's, so kale, spinach... Broccoli. Yeah, any of the cruciferous vegetables are great. But as, as I try to get people to focus, if if I had one plant category that I think people should eat, actually it's going to be two. One is the chicory family of vegetables. So that's radicchio. Some people call it the Italian red lettuce. It's not a lettuce at all. Treviso, which is another one. A chicory. Uh, Belgian endive, most people recognize that. And frise, that f- fuzzy stuff. Okay, but all these things taste so bland. What do you put on them? Olive to- oil and oh, some balsamic well, yeah. vinegar. Yeah, there you go. And balsamic vinegar. Can I put salt and pepper in that? Oh, please. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, pepper actually allows you to absorb a lot of these phytonutrients. For instance, turmeric is profoundly poorly absorbed. But if you put black pepper, the component of black pepper is called bioparin in it, you will vastly improve your chances of absorbing turmeric. And you mentioned nuts, which as we yeah. know, peanuts are not nuts, but other types of nuts like avocados, things, I don't know, almonds. Yeah, so the problem with almonds is they the peel uh, has a lectin that a lot of my patients with rheumatoid arthritis react to. Uh. Uh, so that's why Marcona almonds, the peeled almonds from Spain or Portugal, in fact, I just flew in from Lisbon, you couldn't find an almond that wasn't peeled in Lisbon to eat because they're all peeled. Uh, so almonds are great. Walnuts are probably the best. Really good studies on walnuts uh, promoting not only brain health, but also gut health. Uh, pistachios are great. Um, good, finally. Macadamia like. nuts are great. Um, the other thing that I think f- people really neglect in their diet is mushrooms. And it's a beautiful study that I talked about in the Longevity Paradox out of Singapore looking at people who consumed, on average, two cups of mushrooms per week. Now, if you think about it, that's actually not much, particularly if you cook down mushrooms. Two cups of cooked mushrooms becomes almost nothing. Are you familiar with the company uh, Four Sigmatic? Yeah, you know them well. Yeah, do you like their, I mean, yeah. good, because they're a sponsor of this particular oh, good. podcast. Yes. I was listening to you yeah. talk about that this morning on my drive-in. Yeah, so, and, and I've had uh, <laughs> Tiro, who's the CEO yeah. on, the, on the podcast. And yeah. So I, I take, like, Lion's Mane coffee, Chaga yeah, coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so mushrooms, these people who ate mushrooms actually had a 90% reduction in Alzheimer's compared to people who didn't eat mushrooms. And mm-hmm. there's this amazing compound in some mushrooms, even in the humble button mushroom called ergothionine that is one of the few, oh, I hate to use this word, antioxidants that actually crosses the blood-brain barrier. And it looks like it has phenomenal potential to be a game changer in brain health. And so you talk about 
lectin-free gains. You know what was fascinating? And you talk about, by the way, omega-3 eggs, which I appreciate it. I love eggs. And wild-caught seafood, which I'm a big fan of. Yep. So I was really, you you're, you were right, Dr. Mitchell, that we, it was good to focus on the yeses because now I'm I'm feeling a little less stressed. Right, you feel feeling less stressed. <laughs> that's not good for your health if you're stressed. That's and, right. Even if you're eating great, I mean, your cortisol level and everything's going to go all over the place. So right. you have to make you happy. So, so, and you talk about resistant starches, which, as you mentioned, could be like yams, sweet potatoes, some of these purple type potatoes, uh, what, what might be a starch that I, I might love that I could eat? <laughs> so, you know, jicama is one of these great resistant starches. And you can, you know, a lot of stores now have jicama strips that you can use. I like to use jicama to get guacamole into my mouth. And oh, by the way, true guacamole doesn't have any tomatoes in it. So uh, if somebody's putting tomatoes point. in guacamole, you say, ah, no, don't do that. Uh, so, but jicama is another great thing. The other thing, we now luckily have flour uh, material uh, that are made out of coconut flour or almond flour or cassava flour. Cassava is another resistant starch, a tuber. And in, in all my books, particularly this one, when you substitute almond flour, coconut flour, or cassava flour, you can make cakes, you can make cookies, you can make cupcakes that taste and feel, mouth feel, just like your favorite foods. In fact, you know, one of my sayings is you really want to eat food that you love but that loves you back. And so I've tried working with great chefs uh, through the years uh, to come up with recipes that will have the mouthfeel, that will have the satisfaction of the stuff we're used to, like waffles or pancakes, but they're actually going to promote your health rather than kill you. Right. There are some amazing recipes throughout this book. This is the Plant Paradox family cookbook. You have, like, for instance, this avocado and cheddar sweet potato toast. I don't like cheddar, but I'll go with the avocado part. You have these vegetable roll-ups. You have these so many, so many good recipes in here. Thai coconut chicken. Uh. Thank you for that. So <laughs> I'm, uh, this is going to be my wife's Bible from now on because I don't cook at all I, unless you want a destroyed kitchen. Braised <laughs> chicken with artichokes. Uh, yeah, we just made that on the Tamron Hall show yesterday. It's a, it's a great one. Pistachio mm. chicken croquettes with honey mustard sauce. The honey mustard sauce, that's okay? Yeah, actually mustard is one of those great spices that what we about should honey? use more. Honey in moderation. We have to remember it's... It's nature's sugar in a way. It's still sugar. So just use it as a, you know. What about agave? They always say agave instead uh, of honey. Agave, interestingly enough, if you actually get uh, agave in its pure form, which is inulin, it's great for you. But the way most agave is sold, it's pure sugar. What about sweet leaf stevia? And stevia? Yeah, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, really? I, stevia? Yeah, yeah you know, because I, 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 I help patients just to be really careful because sometimes they cut the stevia with sugar. I don't know why, like dextrose. But yeah. I know a certain brand like sweet leaf stevia yep. is pure stevia. And I know I have a sweet And it has tooth. inulin. I, yeah, and has inulin. And I really, like I put it in my tea, like green, like I like to drink green tea. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. I drink <laughs> about... Green tea is very good. Green tea, do you drink coffee? Uh, yeah, I usually drink coffee. About a I do day. black. Yeah. Any special brand of coffee? Uh, are we supposed to promote somebody? No. Oh <laughs> no! But, I'm uh, coming out with my own brand that I oh, really? am having mm-hmm. made in Ethiopia. Coffee came from Ethiopia, and we're going to support a bunch of local farmers that are starving to death, and oh, we're going right. to bring in their. Are coffee. you doing like a? Cha- are you setting up a charity or something? No, we're it's on Gundry MD. It'll be soon on my uh, link. We we try to support farmers that are doing something. So, so I want to say, like, even though we've been asking a lot of questions, the good, bad, whatever, you have really great tables. Uh, say yes, please, to these acceptable foods. And you really lay, say, say the no thank you list of lectin-rich foods. You really describe what foods to eat, what spices, what, you know, what stuff to put in the refrigerator, what's good, what's bad. It's very clear. And, you know, I just wanted to kind of go through everything and understand a little bit more of the science and and the confusion and so on, which which you guys both have explained very well. And But you describe it perfectly in this book, the the, the Plant Paradox family cookbook. I want to ask two quick bullet questions. I want to be respectful of your time. I know Gwyneth Paltrow's podcast is waiting. <laughs> but uh, um, supplements like NMN and Reservatrol and Metformin, what do you think of those? 
So I've been taking a form of resveratrol uh, called Longevinex for 15 years now. Uh, David Sinclair, I consider a good friend. Um, actually, just had him on my podcast last week. He just came on my podcast? Yeah, and I, I think M&M is very interesting. Uh, I take it. Uh, we'll see. Uh, he and I would disagree about metformin. Um, he takes it. I don't. Uh, I Metformin is a mitochondrial poison, so... Um, I am wary of it. What about uh, berberine, which is the more... That's what I take instead. Okay. Because yeah. so I take berberine, and I've been debating going up to metformin. Yeah, I... Uh, we'll see, you know, uh, when, you know, when David and I are both 120, we'll see if we both remember each other's names and go from there. And I'm going to get a little more complicated because you talk so much about the gut biome and yeah. so on. What do you think of the future of fecal matter transplants for humans? So if I could take a young person's fecal matter and inject it into me somehow. Well, that's a great question. And you're obviously very well studied because... We know that you can take the blood of young animals and give it to old animals and they will become young. But there, we know now that if you look at it, and I talk about this in the book, that if you take look at the microbiome of 150, 105-year-old people who are doing well, they carry the microbiome of a 30-year-old who is doing well. And so now there's a lot of interest that perhaps we've, we've looked in the wrong area. We probably don't need young blood, but what we need is young microbiome. So it's like this misdirection again. Yeah, and there's a beautiful study that was recently published looking at autistic kids, and we know more and more and more that autistic kids part of, and maybe a large part of their autism comes from an altered microbiome, perhaps even interuterine. We now know there is a fecal uh, fetus microbiome. So long story short, they actually took autistic kids, uh, put them on acid blockers, gave them fecal uh, pills, fecal transplant, oral fecal transplant, blocked their acid production so they'd make it through their gut, actually wiped out their gut microbiome with antibiotics. And these kids, they're now out two years. The kids who got the actual fecal transplants have had a 50% reduction in autism symptoms compared to the kids. So I think it is a brave new world. Um, The FDA is looking at this very critically for very good reason uh, because... We are playing with fire, um, and we can do just as much harm with particularly an oral fecal transplant. So, as, so we're not there yet. We don't no, know what to do. But I think it's really exciting. It's what I try to do with my books is say, look, I'm pretty sure that you can make a young microbiome just by eating certain foods. And in fact, getting back to metformin, we know that one of the ways metformin works is it actually promotes the growth of a cool bacteria called Acromancia mucinophilia. Say that three times. Say that. That actually promotes mucus production in your gut and actually promotes sealing of your gut. And berberine does not do that? Don't know. It hasn't been studied, but metformin definitely does that. So maybe that's why metformin might be good. Well, Dr. Gundry, author of The Plant Paradox, Longevity Paradox, and this latest book, The Plant Paradox Family Cookbook, has 81 pot recipes to nourish your family using your instant pot, slow cooker, or sheet pan. Plus, thank you for all the cheat sheets of what's good, what's bad, what's in the middle, why. This is like the Bible to get. I'm so happy you also brought some samples. I'm going to try everything. And thanks, uh, Dr. Dean Mitchell, for helping me with this interview. I'm not a doctor, obviously, but... This was an honor. Thank you, James. So it was great to have you. Thanks for both of you. There was one more question. Oh, exercise. What is exercise? How many times a week should one exercise? Yeah, so exercise is actually a hormetic stimulus. Exercise is good for you because it's bad for you. And exercise... I knew it was bad for me. Yeah, and (laughs) exercise actually changes the gut microbiome, which is really probably, when we get down to it, uh, the reason it's so good for us. The, your your bugs like you to exercise. Because it kills them? No, it actually makes a more diverse microbiome. Exercisers have a more diverse microbiome than non-exercisers. Why? Uh, we don't know the mechanisms yet, quite frankly. Uh, I'd be the first to tell you that. But we know that exercisers have a more diverse microbiome. And here's the final punchline. 
women who exercise routinely throughout their lives have a 90% reduction in Alzheimer's compared to women who don't exercise. And those women who are going to get Alzheimer's, the Alzheimer's arrives 11 years later in the exercisers than in the non-exercisers. What about men? So uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we're not important. Well, the reason that's important is women actually have far more Alzheimer's than men. And that's huh. one of the big surprises. Most of us assume, you know, we're the idiots. Um, but you know, right, yes women, no, cardio versus... Uh, weightlifting. Strength training. Absolutely. Strength training. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Dr. Gundry, Dr. Mitchell, The Plant Paradox Family Cookbook, uh, GundryMD.com. Yep. GundryMD.com, DrGundry.com, Dr. Gundry Podcasts. I've got two YouTube channels. You can find me. Sh- sh- uh, I, I want to go on your podcast too. I've I've had we, so many health professionals. You're on. almost an expert. Now. I, well, sign him up. Sign him up. Excellent. Thank you. It's, right. it's really thank exciting. I uh, really, okay. really appreciate you doing this, and I'm glad Phil Stutz made the introduction. So yeah, he's thanks, a good guy. Man. Thank you, Phil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.